to pray with me. Uh, Father, we will, if we don't already, but soon have our Bibles open before us. We see the table set before us as well. And so we come now, uh, having um, met you and drawn near to you by way of our singing and through the word and through our praying, and now come to listen. And so I pray that you will help us, that uh, you will open our minds to understand and deep within us our hearts that we might believe and thus live. And so I pray now that this word would be life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to James and chapter 4. James chapter 4, I want to read verses 1 through 10. New Testament letter towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, James and uh, chapter 4, please. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Uh, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose suppose it is uh, to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, If it's your first time here or you haven't been here for a while or you're not familiar with this letter of James to um, these refugees, these dispersed um, Christians, dispersed from Jerusalem. If you haven't looked at this for a while, this may be somewhat a blunt as you come to this passage, uh, even blistering. But uh, if you've been here and we've been reading it through together, then you, you get the gist of it. You know this is... James, if you will, in your face on a roll. And he continues on to have his way with them and with with us, uh, really. Um, he's laying out another problem amongst these churches. And just as an aside, one of the things that helps us to, 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 to have confidence in the scripture is we see that it addresses real people with real difficulties. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't made up stuff. No one would make this up and write it about themselves. This is, this is real life 
happening and he's addressing real life and he's addressing it with a consistency of the whole Bible. He's addressing it with a consistency of the teachings of Jesus. He's addressing it even with a consistency of what will come in other New Testament writings. And, and so, so we see this is a real situation, not a, not a made up one. And we know it's real, not only because it's here, but because it's here in the context of our own lives, you see. And then let me just uh, go over very quickly the flow of this, of this discussion. James is going to lay out a problem. And the problem is that they're not getting along, but it's even more complex than that, more dramatic than that. They're quarreling and fighting with one another in the context of the life of the church. And so he, he's going to address and name that particular problem. And then he's going to talk about the reason why This problem exists among them and exists even, no doubt, among us. He's going to talk about why it exists. And we're going to think through again what we talked about some last week about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God and how selfishness plays in our lives and brings forth all kind of evil. And so he's going to address that problem by explaining it to us why it exists and then then we're going to be able to see the gravity of this problem the gravity of a church that isn't united that's fighting inside if you will and then he's going to give us hope and then he's going to lay out for us how then we're to respond to that hope how we're to live in it. Okay, you got that? That's, that's kind of the flow of it. That's how we'll, we'll deal with it. That's how we'll unpack it this morning. So he raises the problem, identifies the problem with a question. Verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And so very clearly, that's what he's going to address. He's saying, listen, there's quarrels and there's fights among you. The word, the word quarrel seems to be an adequate one and a helpful one. Our dictionary puts quarreling like this. It says, it's an angry argument or disagreement between people. We, we get that. There's words flowing and they're quarreling with one another because they're angry with one another. They're having an argument with each other. But, but one of the dictionaries I found uh, added this little expression to it that I think is helpful as well. So that it's an angry argument quarreling is or disagreement between people typically or often between two people who are otherwise on good terms. It isn't always true because people quarrel with people they have never been on good terms with. But if we think about the life of the church, or we think about believers together, or we think about marriages, or we think about friendships, we're otherwise on good terms. But, but if we had to make a new bumper sticker, we would simply say quarreling happens. These kinds of disagreements lead to arguments with each other. Now, disagreements in and of themselves aren't bad. We disagree about a variety of things, I trust, over the course of life. And the question is, how do we work that out? Do we work it out by quarreling, that is, this arguing with each other, that's fighting, as he puts it, really warring, literally, with each other, uh, that degrades in all kinds of Evil Is that how we deal with disagreements? Or how do we really do that? How do we disagree with one another in the context of, 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 of love? This love and unity that we're, we're to have 
even in the fact that it's common, we see it in the context of our political world. Obviously, we live in a world of quarreling, of arguing, not listening to one another necessarily very well, not a great civil discourse. In fact, again, another aside, just to say that when people ask me, well, what role can the church play in the culture in which we live? And one of the answers that's forthcoming is always this, that perhaps we can model for the world how we can get along even in the context of differences. Our world right now, perhaps never, but right now certainly isn't doing a good job of that. So we, how do we live Together as one. We have an advantage, of course, because we have the Holy Spirit who's joined us together as one. But how do we maintain, as the scripture says, that unity in the bond of peace? So just in this aside, we need to think very carefully how we interact with each other and with the world as a whole as believers. Because we can then model, you see, how we can disagree without these painful, warring Fighting quarrels, right? So anyway, uh, we see it. We see it uh, in the context of marriage. Some of you have quarreled already today. On the way out of your house with your children or just with each other or just getting up or whatever it's been. And we get that. We understand the quarreling that takes place in the context of, of even in relationships between one believer and another in the context of marriage or even in the context of, of friendships. And James' point is this ought not really be. And, and, and it ought not really be because of, because of the work of Christ. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed that Jesus said this to his disciples. We find it in John chapter 13 and verse 34. He says, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You to also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And this sense of loving each other is a, is a sign to the world that we belong to Jesus. When we're not loving each other, it's a sign to the world that we don't belong to Jesus or that the message of the gospel really must not be true. In fact, Jesus went on to pray this. In his high priestly prayer, as we call it, this prayer again, right before he goes off to be crucified, he prays for his disciples and he prays for us as well. In verse 20 of John 17, Jesus prays, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through uh, their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. We're to be one. We're to be one with those who've gone before us because we believe the same thing, right? And we're to be one, united together with each other as the Father and the Son are one and we in Him. That's the sense of this relationship that we're to have for each other. And then this, as we've mentioned a couple of times already this morning, probably is somewhat of a surprise and some of a, Something not interesting to some of you, but this is known in the, the, in the history of the church as Pentecost Sunday. And uh, uh, we, we talk about Lent, that season of Lent, and then we come to uh, Holy Week, and then we come to the resurrection celebration of Jesus on Easter. And, and then we go through these days of appearances where Jesus has appeared to people, and we think about that, and then he ascends. And then, Pentecost 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after, 
uh, Jesus sends this Holy Spirit. And we think about the work of the Spirit in a variety of ways. One, as Jesus said, he'll give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and that happened, you see. He gave his Spirit to his disciples to do that. And we see it on the day of Pentecost, even on, on this day when the Holy Spirit comes. I read for our, our call to worship, and I hope you heard me struggle through all the names of those, of those, of those nations and peoples, uh, because on that day, on that Pentecost day, uh, Jews from all over the known world would come. They had to come to Jerusalem. And, and, and if you think that, that um, spreading the gospel throughout the whole world is impossible, God said on the day of Pentecost, I can do it in one moment. I can do it. I can bring everybody together and I can, my spirit can be poured out in such a way that when my disciples speak of the wondrous works of God, everyone in different nations, from different nations in different languages will hear it in their own, their own language, you see. What he was doing was uniting a group of people. Remember, way back in Genesis, there was that, tower that was built so people could glorify themselves what did God do he knocked it down and he separated them by language and now what does he do to glorify himself on the day of Pentecost he unites people by enabling them to hear in a sense a language that all can understand and the language is that's that is being spoken as one that speaks of the, the marvelous, the wondrous works of God. No doubt what he's done in Jesus Christ. So that unites people. And so that's who we are. In fact, then we read in where? 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and chapter 12, verse 13, this. Verse 13, for in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so this baptism with the Holy Spirit is a baptism wherein we're joined together to, to be united as brothers and sisters with our Father. In fact, he, he, he spells that out even more in Ephesians and chapter 2. Notice, notice this, verse 14, Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, he's, he's united all believers in Christ. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. And so you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place uh, for God by the Spirit. You see, you see, that's James' point. This shouldn't be happening. 
this kind of fighting that causes division and all of that. It shouldn't be happening. Why? Because we've been joined together. And then he goes on in chapter 4 and he says, I therefore, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So, so that's, what, that's what we're to do. Since he's joined us together, now we're to work really hard to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And later in that same chapter, he's going to say he's given gifts to the church. Gives to the church so that we can grow up in the unity of faith, loving really one another. So that's why James is concerned here. So, so then he goes on. So, so why are they quarreling and fighting? Notice he asks another question that gives the answer to that. In, in the end of verse 1, he says, Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he says, this is the, the problem, you see. There are these desires. Now, desires in and of themselves, passions in and of themselves aren't bad. We should have be passionate about things. But, but you get the sense that these passions aren't the best of passions. And you get the sense that he's sort of piggybacking on what he's just talked about. About there is a wisdom that comes not from God, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, as he said earlier in this letter. And it's earthly because it's bound by the earth. It's the best we can do. It's, it's unspiritual. It has nothing to do with the Spirit of God and his God-breathed word. And it has everything to do with Satan. Even as we saw him tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, you can be like God. You see, the difficulty is... That because of sin, we have this sense that everything revolves around us. <laughs> and when we have this sense that everything revolves around me, when I have this sense that everything revolves around me, then you can see the difficulty already. Because you have this sense that everything revolves around you. But everything can't revolve around the both of us. And so I'm struck. You're struck with what the scripture says, a bitter jealousy I want what you have. And it causes me to be bitter when I don't have it. And my ambition now is no longer simply this desire to work hard for the goal of glorifying God, but, but now it's this desire to work so that I may be glorified. And I may have. And so we see the clash then that selfishness really brings to people. And, and I know even within myself and even within yourself as I read earlier from Galatians chapter 5, there's this, this warring that goes on between the flesh and the spirit, if you will. God's spirit lives within us. He's given us new life. And we know till Jesus comes, or at least till our death, then we're still plagued by the presence of sin. And so there's a war. And Paul says, don't you know that at times the winner of that battle is the flesh, is sin really, the selfishness. And that's what's played out and that's what really causes the quarrels and the fighting as the Apostle Peter put it in his first letter in chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. So James is saying the same thing. 
what happens here is this war. And what happens is then we become selfish in our own ways when we ought not. And that's what causes the, the fighting, you say, you see, uh, among us. Notice how he puts it in verse Verse 3, or verse, the middle of verse 2, he says, um, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Uh, that's to parallel what he's just said. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You, you see, as he, as he puts it, we desire and don't have, we covet and cannot obtain. So what happens? He says, we murder and we fight and we quarrel. And he says, really murder? Were they really killing themselves? Maybe it's happened in the history of the church. We don't have any documentation of anybody that was killed. But we know the ultimate end, if this quarreling and anger is taken to its final post, someone might get killed in the midst of these Arguments. But it's also true that there's a parallelism between murdering and fighting and quarrel. We remember, of course, uh, how Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and chapter 5. And we know that James uh, refers to his elder brother very often as he writes. But in Matthew in chapter 5, verse 21, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus clearly is, 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 is working along this continuing continuum. And it's going pretty rapidly from anger. He identifies it as murder. We can kill each other with even our hatred and even with our words. Um, John puts it like this in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so you, you can see the dissonance of, of James. You can, you can see that, that he's looking at these uh, people in these churches, these believers, these brothers, as he calls them over and over again in these churches. And he's saying, I don't get it. I don't get what I'm seeing here. And then you can tell that all along. He's saying, you, you've professed faith in Jesus, but I, but I see you valuing people as the world values people. I see you valuing the rich over the poor. I, I don't get it. That's not the way it should be. If, if you really have faith, then you ought to be able to see it worked out because the evidence of faith means that there's a changed life. And if there's a changed life, then we ought to see that changed life. And, and so faith without works is dead. And then he said, I hear how you speak to each other and, and you worship together and bless the Lord and then you leave and you curse one another. No, 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 no. That, that's not the way it ought to be. You see, that's not the way it really ought to be. He says, don't you know there's a wisdom that's of the earth, that's unspiritual, that's demonic, that's jealousy and selfish breeding in you? You ought not live according to that understanding of life. But rather, you should live according to the wisdom of 
the wisdom of God, which is peaceable, you see, which is gentle, which is kind, which is really love, you see. That's the wisdom of God. And, and so rather than to be a taker, you should be a giver. And, and, and so that's the sense of real life. That's the sense of real life. And so what James is seeing is what we often see in our own lives. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. Why am I acting like this? Why are we acting like this, you see? Why are we coveting? Why are we being jealous of one another? And, and it happens. We see it in the context of marriage. We see quarreling and arguing happening in marriage. And, and, and almost always, really always, somewhere along the lines, we can trace it back to selfishness. And we trace it back to selfishness. And even in the context of, of church life, we can trace quarrels and arguments, not disagreements per se, but quarrels and arguments back to selfishness. When we see one honored and we think we ought to be honored, and when we see one exercising gifts that we wish we had and ministries that we think should be ours and, and they're not and, and we find ourselves at odds and quarreling and arguing with one another. When we see some attention that we think we ought to get, I, I don't feel like I fit in or my children don't fit in and, and I, so I'm not getting the attention that we really deserve and so we begin to, to get upset about that and rather than raise it in a, in a, in a, in a way that's kind and gentle, we, we, we raise it in a way that is quarreling and argumentative and we begin then to say things that kill friendships and relationships. And we ought not, Paul says, do that. Because you see, the gravity of this situation is more than perhaps we could ever imagine. I mean, sometimes in relationships, and, and, and I'm so grateful this isn't true of our church, and I, I don't mean that to manipulate you, but it just isn't uh, generally speaking. As far as I know, maybe you don't tell me stuff, which is fine. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but our experience hasn't been this, but, but, but could be, and at times has been, I'm sure. But so the gravity of the situation is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Um, I, I, I like, from a negative standpoint, the word besmirch. <laughs> this kind of this kind of behavior besmirches. Everybody knows what that word means. Whether you've ever used it before or heard it before, you know what that word means. Besmirches the glory of God when His people kill each other. With their words and actions. It just does. Because he's. He's brought peace. And when we don't live in that peace you see. Then. It. Grieves. The spirit of God. See? So it besmirches his. Glory you see. And you can see even it affects our prayer life. Notice. He says, at the end of verse 2, he says, You have not because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, when we're in this selfish mode and we're quarreling with one another, um, we, we won't ask for what we desire because our pride says, Oh, I can get that on my own. All I have to do is fight with you. And I'll get what I want. 
So we won't ask. And, and there's something else too we won't ask because we know that maybe we ought not have that. Or we know that we ought not have it for the reasons for which we desire it. And so he even says, if you ask but you don't receive, but you ask wrongly, why? So you can spend it on your passions. The Lord isn't going to give us things that's just going to build us up and, and cause us to sin even more. And it affects our prayer life. You, you see, our relationships with each other affect our praying. Uh, turn, if you could quickly, John chapter 15 and verse 7. John 15 verse 7. The apostle writes, or this is Jesus speaking, and John lays it out for us. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So we say, ask the question then, how is it that his word abides in us? How do we abide in him? We'll keep reading. Verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. How do we do that? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So, so how do we abide in his love? Well, by keeping his commandments. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. If we play connect the dots, <laughs> if we're not loving one another, then he's not answering our prayers. But if we are, then he will. Why? Well, because our hearts are no doubt right in our praying when we're asking in the context of loving each other. First Peter chapter 3, please, and verse 7. Notice this. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, if you're not loving your wives well, your prayers will be hindered. God calls us to love our spouses, and if we're not, then we'll find our praying disrupted. Then in 1 John in chapter 3, in verse 21, Beloved, if our hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and... Love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands and abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so uh, our, com- our, our hearts condemn us, you see, before God if we're not really loving each other. It doesn't mean we're not forgiven our sins and all of that. We don't belong to him. It just simply means that, that in our experience, in a daily way, when we're not loving one another, we're out of sorts. Not only with each other, but we're out of sorts with God. And so our prayers will be affected by that, what we ask, or even if we do ask. How can we really go to God 
when we haven't loved those he's saved, those he loves. Make sense? This isn't something legalistic. This is something true in the course of our experience with God. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven one another. Right? If we haven't forgiven one another, can you really go with confidence to God to say, forgive my sins? Sometimes you may have to start your time of confession by saying, God, I'm sorry I haven't forgiven. And then list all the people you haven't forgiven. No, I forgive them. Now, would you forgive me? You see, we have no confidence before God. If our heart says, So we need then to go through the time of confession. And we need to love one another so that our prayers aren't hindered. So, so James makes that very point. He says, when this is going on in a fellowship, then, then don't, you won't pray. And even if you do, it, it'll be fruitless for you. And then notice what he says. It's even more than that. You're adulterous. Spiritually speaking, you're adulterous. You know that God in the Old Testament refers to himself in relationship with Israel as Israel's husband. You know that in the New Testament, the church is related to Christ as Christ's bride. And so the imagery of marriage is bound in our relationship with God. I won't go through it, but you should think this through if you're married or thinking of it. That our marriage is a, is a, is a reflection, if you will. Marriage is a reflection of our relationship with God through Jesus. And so he can use this kind of language. And he can say, what you're doing here is you're being unfaithful to me when you're acting this way. Because when you're acting this way, you're not my friend, but you're a friend of the world. Not friends with people in the world, but a friend of the world's way. And you're living like you're part of the world, not part of the kingdom of God. And so it's that dramatic, he says. In fact, you're actually an enemy of God. When you live like this. Now remember, he's talking to brothers and sisters here. He's talking to church people. He's talking to believers. So he hasn't cast them out of the kingdom. But, but he's saying, it shouldn't be this way. Here's who you are in Jesus. And, and, and now this is how you're acting. Whether it's in the church or in your marriage or in friendships or whatever. And so, so it shouldn't be that way. And so when it's like that, well, then really you're, you're being unfaithful to God. You're being an adulterer. You're being his enemy. You're not a friend of his, but a friend of the world. So, what hope have we? And then he goes on like this. He says, verse 5, Or do you uh, suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, our jealousy is bad because we are jealous after things that aren't ours. God's jealousy is always good. In fact, the Old Testament says his name is Jealous. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that he wants those he loves to love him exclusively. It's not wrong for a husband to be jealous for his wife's love. That she should love him and love him only. It's not wrong for a wife to be jealous for the love of her husband. That he should love her and love no other. It's not wrong at all for God to be jealous for what he's made in us, his spirit in us, and the new life that he's given to us. And the good news is that God is jealous for us. That is, he won't let us go. And so what does he do? Next sentence. It says, but he gives 
more grace. (laughs) That's the good news here. He gives more grace so that our selfishness can be overcome. Give more grace so that we won't continue in this way of quarreling and arguing. Give more grace so when we hear this word, we'll repent and, and believe. And he goes on then in terms of how we're to respond. He says, God gives, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Of course, that's the way it is. The proud says, I can. The humble says, I can't. So the proud will never receive from God. But the humble will go to God and says, please help me in this. I find myself quarreling and fighting with brothers and sisters, with husband or wife, with children, or in the context of my own life. And so I find myself like this at odds. And so please help me give more grace. This doesn't mean that the grace that he's given to us is insufficient to save us. But this is the kind of enabling. This is the kind of of daily, moment-by-moment grace that he gives. We read about it in Hebrews in chapter 4. In verse 14, speaking of Jesus. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that us hold fast to our confession. If we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses... But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is the point. Let us, verse 16, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, our heart doesn't condemn us. And when we're loving one another, we we can go to him and receive more grace. Receive more grace. Enabling grace to help us. Maintained as the scriptures of the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Not be those who quarrel and, and fight. So how do we respond to that very quickly? Uh, verses 7 through 10. He says we're to submit ourselves to God. That's the humility of it, isn't it? To submit ourselves to God. God, I'm wrong, you're right. To submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. We need to take those together. Resist the devil and draw near to God. When we resist the devil, how do we do that? Well, we don't do it, at least this would be my recommendation. We don't do it by yelling at him or binding him um, or any of that. It was Martin Luther's favorite tactic, I think, <laughs> to yell at the devil. But, but it is, I don't think it's a good idea necessarily. Because we're never told to, but we're told to, to, to take this armor. Well, what's the armor of God in Ephesians 6? Well, the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is just simply drawing near to God. It's the belt of truth. To know the truth. To think about God. Not the lies of the devil, but to think about God and his truth. What he says is really true. The breastplate of righteousness. To, to know the righteousness of Christ. That the righteousness of Christ is really ours. So we put this armor on. We believe it. We know it. This is true. No matter what Satan says of me. No matter what the devil says of me. I know that I belong to, to God. Because I haven't come in my own righteousness. But in Christ. And so I, I can resist him. I, I don't have to act like that. I have the very righteousness of Christ upon me. And within me. And now I can follow that righteousness. And live it out. I don't have to fuss and fight. I know the gospel. My feet are shod with it. I know the gospel of peace. I know I belong to God. And I know he brought peace with us. So we can, 
We can find it because he's made it. That's the truth of the gospel. We can find this peace with each other, you see. And, and I, I have this, this shield, that's this faith. And so when the devil fires shots my way, I don't have to believe him. I can trust God because I know the truth and his righteousness. I know the gospel. And on my head is salvation. I know the truth of, of the salvation. So I, I know that I belong to him. I, I, know, I know all of that. I, I know that I'm saved by grace through faith. And so I can resist the devil as I know this, as I draw near to God. I take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I know it. I believe it. I use it. I apply it in the course of my own life. We needn't act like this. I needn't act like this. We've really been joined together. So, and then we pray. We draw near to him, you see. And then he says this. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, I want you to confess and repent. Purify your hearts. Make confession of your sin. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Cleanse your hands. Repent. Stop doing it. (laughs) Stop. Stop fighting. (laughs) It's pretty blunt, you see. Stop fighting. Cleanse your hands. Stop doing it. Clean yourself of this mess. And then verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning or joy to gloom, he says. What does he mean by that? Well, we're supposed to be people of joy. So it doesn't mean not be joyful. But he says this. Never, never, never. Be satisfied in your sin. Never be happy-go-lucky when you're in the midst of sin. You should mourn about it. If you're laughing and you're in the midst of sin, stop laughing and mourn over your sin, you see. Deal with it. Purify your heart. Cleanse your hands. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. All of this is summed up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That was true for Jesus, wasn't it? He humbled himself. And he was exalted. He humbled himself and he was exalted. Right? Now, he had no sin, but he bore ours. And then the humility of his servant went to the cross for us. And he was exalted. We humble ourselves before God. We say, help me, save me, enable me by your spirit to live. And he will. Exalt us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, for as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, We declare the Lord's death until he comes. This table is not a table of or for the proud. This table is of and for the humble. As Jesus submitted to his father and went to his death for us, he trusted his father would exalt him and he did. As we come to him in humility, confessing, repenting, 
trusting. He exalts us, seats us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Let's pray, Father. I can say, on the one hand, how grateful I am to have been and to be and continue to be amongst the people that seems to understand what James has just laid out for us. For by your grace we have been spared much. And for that we're grateful. I thank you for the times when you've woken us up in relationship with each other, perhaps in the context of church life or marriage or with friends, family, those with whom we work, that we're being selfish. And that's causing all kinds of trouble. Thank you when, by your righteous jealousy for that which is within us, that you've humbled us and enabled us to submit to you, to resist the devil and stop being selfish, and draw near to God who strengthens us and helps us. to purify our hearts by confession, to cleanse our hands by repenting, by not taking sin lightly. And you've exalted us by way of forgiveness. Thank you for your wonderful grace. And even now as we come to this table, we come as one. As a people that you've united together in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, be there anything that would be between us, that even as we come, that would be forgiven, put aside, and that our commitment would be to love well one another. So the people may know that we belong to Jesus, People may know that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that people can see the glory of God. So now take, please, this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that when we come to this table, we know that Jesus is present. And even by our eating together, that you're uniting us together. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of Grace Church, but it's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy and all those who've humbled themselves to believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel and all those who desire now to live that out before God and with each other. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two are down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And remind yourself to submit to God and to humble yourself before him.
that he may lift you up. Please come.